This podcast is sponsored by Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Listen for more at the conclusion of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman. I'm Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College in beautiful Western Pennsylvania. I'm here with my friend, Todd Pruitt, PCA pastor at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia, in the equally beautiful Shenandoah Valley. Indeed. And today we have a special guest. I've, uh, I've known our guest today, actually, for uh, I think only three weeks less than my entire time in the United States. I emigrated in August uh, 2001 with my wife to teach at Westminster Seminary in uh, just outside Philadelphia. And on the Sunday after 9 11, hmm. I and my wife attended a Reformed Presbyterian church in Elkins Park, just outside Philadelphia, now pastored, I think, by John Edgar. And there was a young student from RPTS, Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Barry, I've mentioned you again. Notice Reformed Presbyterian Theological <laughs> Seminary. You do exist. We do approve of you. Great seminary. Little free advert for Barry York there. Uh, a student from RPTS was preaching. Now, that's a difficult Sunday to preach on. Mm. Uh, a nation that had just experienced uh, its, well, I might, well, might say, mainland vulnerability from terrorists for the first time in its history. Mm. For somebody to preach on that Sunday, that's a tough call, particularly if you're still a student. It was an excellent sermon. I seem to remember it was on a psalm. Uh, and the young man preaching that day was uh, the Reverend Anthony, or as you Americans would say, Anthony. I can never quite bring myself to do that. The Reverend Anthony Silvaggio. Anthony was a lawyer, but like all Christians, he's now a repentant lawyer, <laughs> no longer practices. Uh, and he is currently, if I get his full title, he's a pastor, he's an author, he's a lecturer, he's a conference speaker, he's a repentant attorney, and he currently serves as pastor of the Rochester Christian Reform Church in Rochester, New York. And we want to interview him today, not just because he's a fine preacher and a fine pastor. He's written an excellent new book, Considering Job, Reconciling Sovereignty and Suffering, in which he wrestles with one of the most difficult books in the Bible, the book of Job. Anthony, great to have you with us. Thank you. So glad to be here and to see you all again. Book of Job. One of my favorite books in the Bible, uh, partly, I think, because it is so tricky to understand and partly because it's wrestling with some of the deepest questions of human existence. Most obviously, of course, the question of suffering. The question of evil is there as well, but the question of suffering. And the question of suffering is something that every individual, if you live long enough, has to face as a fact of life upon which we have to 
reflect because we are experiencing suffering in our own bodies or the death or suffering in that of somebody we love. Why did you choose the book of Job as a focal point for, for your studies, for your thinking, for your preaching? It really came out of the pastoral work. And it's, it's so difficult to talk to people about suffering when they are going through suffering. And I think it's one of the lessons of the book of Job uh, is to um, pastorally to really approach people, listen to people. You think of Job's friends initially sitting with him for a period of time, not speaking. And so I think Job is particularly a book that equips Christians to prepare for suffering, which is almost inevitable in all of our lives. And it has to be done ahead of time. You have to prepare just like in infantry training, in the armed forces, you don't go into battle without training. And this book, I think, is best read, best studied when you're not in that crucible of suffering and to prepare yourself for that day, to fill yourself with the knowledge of who God is, what he is doing in unfolding his plan in our lives, in the world. But that is best done by Christians when they're not in that crucible of suffering. So I wanted to write the book so that Christians would engage with this material uh, instead of someone showing up at the bedside at the hospital. And, you know, it's, it's very difficult. I, I just had somebody, you know, who's wrestling um, with battling cancer and I'm, I was almost reluctant to, to give them this book because it's hard to read uh, when, when you're in it. And so that's really why I wrote the book, a pastoral uh, need I, I felt in, in folks just to be ready and to think about suffering ahead of time. That's very much the point that uh, D.A. Carson makes, I think, in his book, How Long, O Lord. Mm -hmm. He sort of says at the beginning of that, you know, if you're reading this book because you're suffering, you bought it too late. You, you, you should have bought it some years ago. And it's interesting that you make that point. Sorry, Todd. No, I no, that, that was going to make a interrupt you. I was going to make a similar point, Carl. You remember um, some years ago, we interviewed uh, Paul Wolf, a, a, a pastor, a PCA pastor who went through uh, cancer and treatments and, you know, young husband, little kids. And one of the comments he made to us that has stuck with me when we asked him, you know, how have you been dealing with this? The, the, the sickness, the not knowing what the next year is going to hold that sort of thing. And he said, you know, um, theology really came through for me. And to your point, Anthony, he was basically making that very point is because of the, the, the hard work he'd done, the spade work in the scriptures over the years over these kinds of complex and difficult issues was there for him when he got the scary diagnosis. And so he didn't have to play catch up because it was already there for him. And I've thought, you know, as a pastor every week, how one of my questions I ask, how am I preparing the people I serve to suffer so that I don't have to do all the theodicy in the hospital room. I want to hug in the hospital room. I want to pray and I want to read a Psalm in the hospital room. I don't want to have to do all the heavy spade work there. And so we do that from the pulpit. And incidentally, like, like Carl, um, I, I got the book and began reading. It was immediately so helped by it. And, and I, I preached through Job around four years ago, and I was thinking, oh, I wish this book had been available because this would have been such a great thing to put in the hands of, of the people in my church as I was preaching through this. And so, uh, pastors, elders, you're going to want to get a hold of this book. But one of the things, Anthony, that, that the book of Job presses on us and, and this is really good for us Reformed Christians because 
we're, we're very good at kind of pushing back against a lot of extremes from the charismatic movement and that sort of thing. If we're not careful, we can be reactionary and become almost anti-supernatural. But Job presses on us, for instance, to, to deal with questions about Satan um, in, in a way that um, a lot of the books of the Bible actually don't do. Job brings it right in our face, this issue of, of Satan. And I wonder if you could just unpack for a minute, what can we contemporary Christians, and since most of the people listen to us at least lean in a reformed direction, what, what can we learn about Satan uh, um, and about his works from the book of Job? Yeah, I know. Certainly there's a debate uh, from most scholars. I'm not you know, a scholar of the Old Testament, but mm-hmm. a lot of scholars debate whether the figure we deal with in Job is Satan, right. as we would describe, uh, as is tra- described in the New Testament. Right. I lean towards yes mm-hmm. uh, to that, and I do treat it that way. But I think the primary thing we can learn is that uh, the idea of the adversary, mm-hmm. of one who seeks to undermine both God and our own faith and our own credibility. And this is, you know, one of the advantages of suffering, if I could put it in that kind of crass yes. way, is it's, it's given to prove the authenticity, the sincerity, uh, the value of, of our faith. And if you think about James talking about trials mm-hmm. and, and this idea, it's, it, again, this is not something you say at the bedside at the hospital, sure. like, oh, you've got a great benefit here right. and you get to test your faith. But that's part of what goes on. And in that sense, if you take the argument that Job's comforters, the three, his three friends here, um, that they are an extension of, of Satan's hand in mm-hmm. a way that they make, that they're trying to convince. I talk about them as being, you know, Satan's prosecuting yeah. attorneys, like that they're, they're really trying to bring the same case that for Christians, we could argue about, well, are you personally a target of Satan? You yeah. know, are you that significant in the world? Uh, but there is a system in the world. And we, we hear about that in the New Testament about, about, uh, and, and that I think does bear down on us to try to undermine our faith. This happens in a variety of ways. And of course, we're never weaker, more vulnerable than when we're physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually under attack, even by our, you know, an illness, uh, a loss in our life. This is when people often lose their faith. Right. So I, I think you're right. This is a, an opportune time uh, for a spiritual type of attack, if I can mm-hmm. say that as a reformed person, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's how I, I would see yeah. it. Yeah. One of the things that always strikes me as somewhat mysterious, well, there are many things that are mysterious in the book of Job. One of the many mysterious things in the book of Job is uh, the appearance of God at the end. You know, when God appears at the very end, you know, he speaks not once but twice out of the whirlwind. And the whirlwind is really a sign of judgment. This is not the pastoral God. This is not the the caring, cry-on-my-shoulder God who's making an appearance at this point. When he used to teach this in the Bible survey at Grove, that was something the students found difficult. The story of Job, the man suffering, really God has to take a significant amount of responsibility for this. He didn't cause it directly, but he certainly lifted the protective barriers from around Job to allow the accuser to get in there. Satan, and I agree with you, I tilt towards it being being Satan. Well, I preached on Job, actually. I started off by saying, we don't know. And by the time it was at the end of the book, I thought, yeah, I'm pretty sure yeah. it is actually the real Satan we're talking about here. How do you as a pastor uh, 
compute the fact that God himself in this text is not pastoral, certainly in the way that we typically understand pastoring, as in sit quietly and listen, allow the person to speak. God is almost doing the opposite. He's sort of, I hate to quote that terrible person in Congress, but he's sort of saying, shut your mouth, Job, and listen. Uh, how do you how do you see that as playing out in in a practical pastoral environment, Anthony? Yeah, I struggle with that as as well. Uh, the way I've tried to understand that is to if and this is kind of the the argument I take in the book. If the primary purpose of the Book of Job uh, canonically is to provide some level of balance to the book of Proverbs, uh, the idea of a, a theology, I, you know, we, I use the term retribution theology, this idea of equations in theology, that if you, some, you do something good, something good should happen to you. If you do something bad, you should suffer for it. And you know, here's this person in this book, Job, who does nothing wrong, um, at least initially, and suffers mightily. And so if, that, if we take the book canonically, I can understand that what's being justified here is a fuller understanding that God is giving about who he is, his prerogatives, his freedom, his sovereignty, his ultimate immutable goodness that doesn't change. Uh, so if I take it in that grand cosmic canonical scope, it's a little bit easier, but, but as you say, if you take it as an individual uh, receiving that, it can seem harsh at first, or at least insensitive, however you want to phrase it. I, I think it does help to think about what has built up over the book of Job. If you, you, know, you move on from chapter three forward as Job begins to, you know, I, I don't think it's clear in the book that Job is vindicated, but he's certainly engaged in uh, speech toward God, a misunderstanding of God, uh, a lack of trust in God's goodness. And, you know, in a, a little bit, I think some of the harshness, uh, some of the response of God can be understood in that context. Job has been, you know, blathering on here for a bit in some ways in, in, in irreverent ways. And so God counteracts that and says, okay, yeah. <laughs> you know, you've, you've been throwing accusations at me and, no, you you get in the in the witness stand, yeah. Aaron. Let me question you. Right. Yeah, and that's the way I've understood it is that um for for a long period of time, Job's dismay was voiced and there was no no rebuke for him being dismayed, no rebuke for him being confused, no rebuke for him having questions and 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 complaints. It, it it's it's when those it's when that dismay and those complaints turned into accusations where God speaks and 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 I, I, you know, I'm with Carl in terms of, I mean, certainly God's response is, is not a pattern for my response to, to, to a sufferer because I'm not God. Um, but it seems, it seems appropriate for a free and sovereign God to answer back in a clear way when his human creature begins to accuse him of running his universe horribly. Now, that said, I empathize, I, I sympathize with Job. You know, I, I I probably wouldn't have said the righteous things he said at the beginning. I would have gotten to the accusations much quicker than, than Job would have. Um, but then my thoughts aren't God's thoughts. Um, and and there is there is a tension there, Carl. To your point, there is an uncomfortable yeah. tension for us because yeah. as creatures, 
it's hard for us to grapple with God's freedom. Yeah. You know, if you hold to, I mean, Bob Files' book, little book mm-hmm. on Job, where he identifies Leviathan with Satan. Yeah. That, I found that actually, I, I, I was persuaded by him. I, I know that that's a relatively new reading, et cetera, et cetera. But you do see then that God lifts the curtain a bit and says, okay, you've had this outrageous satanic attack on you, but I've still got this thing by the tail. Right. He, 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 he still operates within the bounds of my creation. Yes. There's no power that I haven't given him. So if you read Leviathan that way, it doesn't soften the tone, but it, 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 it does mean it's not quite as, as brutal as it might yeah. have been. And certainly not capricious. No. I mean, I, yeah, I love the book of Job. I, I was saying earlier, Anthony, that uh, when I, both my ordination and my installation, I had Job 28 read. To me, it's one of the great chapters in the Bible. Uh, it's never, never get bored of reading Job 28. Uh, Elihu, good guy or bad guy? That's another of the sort of the, you know, you know, depending on how you read that will really shape how you read the book. How do you read Elihu? Well, I took a, what, what I described as the minority position of, of viewing him in a more favorable light. And uh, so that comes one of the that's a majority that, position. Here, that was my, that was my oh, view really? as well. That's a, un, that's a unanimous wow, position okay. on this program. I view him that way as well. <laughs> well that's exciting. So one of the things I, I tried to do in the book, you know, I mean, there's, there's a little bit of in, I think, in, in theology, and I'm guilty of this too, the um, kind of ignoring everything that's happened in scholarship in the church prior to you know, this, like all new scholarship is better than yeah. old, old study. And so I, I use James Durham, an old Scottish Puritan, as he did lectures on Job, mm. and, and he takes that position. I just thought it oh. so great, and he articulates it in those lectures. So I take that position, uh, I think... Um, which is fascinating because he's clearly the younger uh, person, which is just from a biblical perspective with age being connected with wisdom and to have the, the younger person be perhaps the wiser of these friends. So I don't treat, a lot of people treat the friends, uh, you know, uh, uh, Elihu is same as the other comforters, but I've taken the position that he, he comes at a certain part in the book that I think is a transition point, obviously in the epilogue, there is uh, no condemnation of, of of Elihu particularly. It's the other uh, friends, and uh, I think it, this bridges. It plays a a role in the literary development of the book to bridge to God's questioning of Job. So I think there's a variety of reasons to argue that he uh, presents a different tact, and that he is also one who is uh, not rebuked by God, that he's speaking truth in the Job's life and is preparing for the, what is an interrogation yeah. uh, by God. Anthony, as we, as we think about ministering to our friends and family, people in our churches that are dealing with suffering, um, what, what do we learn from Job's friends? What, what good lessons might we learn from them? And then what bad lessons? What, what, what do we learn what to do and what not to do from Job's friends? Yeah, I think you know, and I've tried to practice this pastorally. That 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 scene originally when they first see Job on the ash heap there, and they and they basically just sit with mm-hmm. him in silence. And I think that's so wise. I think that's so helpful. I have found that so helpful to to you know, you're so tempted as a pastor and perhaps just as a Christian in general to offer the platitude, uh, cite the scripture verse right away. Um, but to that person in suffering, just sitting, listening, 
and letting them speak out of that suffering. I think that is such a right thing to do from Job's friends. Obviously, the wrong thing to do is to jump to conclusions, particularly regarding causes of someone's suffering. Now, look, at there's a truth to Proverbs, right? Proverbs is, is a true book. If you act like a fool, uh, if you follow the path of folly, you often lead in, yourself into destruction. Uh, but it's not always the case. You know, we, we look around our world and, you know, this is the psalmist uh, wrestles with the prosperity of the wicked. Yeah. And, and, and that's true. And, and just so much with the righteous uh, uh, that you can live a righteous life before God and suffer immensely. And, and this is where I take, you know, particularly the argument of the book of Job as uh, typological pointing towards in a redemptive historical way, the work of Jesus. And this is one of the most exciting yeah. things about the book is that it's a book about a righteous person who suffers for the glory of God and according to God's purposes. Now, obviously, Job's suffering did not redeem anyone. It vindicated himself. It vindicated, in a sense, God's credibility. But, of course, with Jesus, that suffering takes it one uh, just obviously in, in the sense of our salvation and redemption. But so that's what I would say is to the best lessons we can draw are when you, someone's suffering, particularly initially, you can get to the discussion of theology. You can get to the discussion of scripture verses and, and truths. We do need to speak that in the people's lives. But I'd say you start with the silence, you start with the sitting, and then you move to the speaking and the scripture and the theology yeah. of filling people up. Um, yeah. That's what I would suggest. And for us to not pretend, and this was, you know, you mentioned, you, you intimated, you know, that there were, Job's friends said some things that technically broadly speaking, were correct, but they weren't applicable to Job's situation. And we can easily do that if we start speaking too soon. And so that's a really good corrective there for us. Yeah. One last question from me, uh, Anthony. Um, we have quite a number of pastors listen to, to the podcast. And I know this was a challenge for me when I, I think it was the first book I preached through after I'd been called as pastor, I'd preached through books of the Bible before. Yeah, unless you're going to do the Joseph Carroll thing. And I noticed you chose Durham, not Carroll, as your guy, you know, the 12 or 20 volumes or whatever it was, and you're going to be there for 10 years. You know, Job is a, is a book, it, it's tricky on so many levels. It's tricky because of the content. It's tricky because of the form. Poetry is a, is a tough form to preach on. Uh, how would you recommend, let's say, a pastor is listening to this program thinking, yeah, I'd like to preach on Job, and then he looks at Job and he, re he remembers, oh, yeah, this is a book which is not like preaching through Colossians or even like preaching through the Gospels, where there's a kind of givenness to the structure. You're not going to spend a lot of time wrestling with the structure. How, how do you think about preaching on Job, verse by verse, pericope by pericope, theme by theme? How, how would you advise that a, a pastor who's maybe never preached on Job before, maybe never preached on wisdom literature before, goes about thinking about preaching on Job in a way that will be helpful for the congregation, uh, will not take him 25 years, uh, and, uh, and yet will bring out the, the core message and messages of the book? Great, great question. And certainly, you know, this will be my opinion. Um, certain people will disagree uh, with that. But I, I, I do advocate for the, for the preaching of, of the church that you do attempt to take um, James Durham's point of view and uh, try to do more of uh, re reducing the amount of material. I think um, particularly the section of the dialogues between Job and the original three comforters, uh, 
chapters you know, four to 27, that kind of area. I think you, you can do some thematic work there that would allow you to uh, truncate that, to reduce the size of that corpus and, and really capture the truth of, of Scripture. Now, obviously, every word of Scripture is inspired. It's worthy for instruction, for proof, all of those things. So I would never argue against someone, but I think people would, t- would get lost um, and because of how those things rotate around those dialogues, I think in preaching, it's helpful for people to summarize that material. And uh, I think that's a natural way to maybe reduce a little bit of the length of it. So I do advocate for that. Um, I think you can do this in a, in a way that will, I mean, first of all, you get this great opportunity of using all your interpretation skills you learned in seminary, because you're going to have every type of literature, you know, a genre you can yeah. think of, right. You're going to, in this book, it's great that way. Mm-hmm. And so, but I, I would advocate for trying to um, not go verse by verse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I, Carl, I, I forget what you told me you had done. I, I took the um, narrative section, you know, a little bit slower, but then the vast middle section kind of did it thematically yeah. for, for that, very reason. I, I think that there might be some guys who can do that really, really well. I didn't think I was going to be that man, um, but I did the cycles of speeches. Yeah. I did the introductory sections, yeah. and then in the middle section before Elihu and God, I did the the cycles of the yeah, speeches, yeah. picking out the key themes right. in each one. Yeah. I think I my whole series was about fifteen sermons mm-hmm. or something like yeah, that. Yeah. So, um, Anthony, I've got one more question for you. As we think about God's Oh, if you want to put it this way, prosecution of Job, you know, at the end, God's answering back to Job's a- accusations. Um, you know, G- God takes Job to, to creation and his work is, as creator. What's the significance of that? What is, what is God getting at that, that Job needed to hear and that maybe we need to hear when we're tempted to say, God doesn't know what he's doing? What, 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 what do you think God is doing there in, that, in those moments? Uh, so there's a, a variety of things. Let me just pick out yeah. one that yeah. I think is the major one. The, I mean, creation displays for us numerous things about the character of God. Certainly wisdom. Mm-hmm. Wisdom is revealed in creation. Proverbs speaks to that. Um, Jesus being the creator, uh, as Hebrews talks to us about that, all that emphasis about Okay, so we have a wise God. Look what he did. Look how he ordered things. Look at the seasons. Look at the stars. All of these things, uh, the, the putting of things in their places, right? You know, I, that the, I always I kind of talk about God being like, a little bit like Marie Kondo. You know, it's like this kind of <laughs> everything gets yeah. its God is a God of order yes. and a God of wisdom. And, a, and this is really, and so what he does is. It has a purpose behind it. It has, it's, it's meant to, it's not chaotic. Right. It's not random. It's not, you know, this is not open theism. You know, God is a perfect chess player. He knows the whole thing from the beginning. And so creation displays that is wisdom, but it also displays his goodness. Mm-hmm. He made everything and it was good. Uh, he shows this. I, I don't think there was necessarily grace before the fall, but there was goodness yes. uh, before the fall that God displayed that goodness and in, in, in providing a world, taking care of his people. And of course, that goodness is expressed, obviously, in, in redemption and, and in grace. But if you look at creation, two things come out, wisdom, goodness, and I could add to that order. Yeah. And so to Job saying, trust me, look, yeah. look around you. And I think that still works right. for us uh, today as people, as Christians, to 
understand the created world as coming from a wise, good, and ordered God, even when momentary parts of our lives seem so chaotic, so painful, and it does feel that way. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? And we get confused. But if you can look at the, the big picture of creation, if you can get outside of yourself and see who God is, uh, and that's revealed to us in that creative mm. creation story. That's good. That's good. Well, our guest has been Anthony Salvaggio. His book is Considering Job, Reconciling Sovereignty and Suffering. It's published by Reformation Heritage. Uh, uh, books, which is one of my favorite publishing houses, and true to form, they've brought us another wonderful book. Um, I commend this book to you uh, if you're a pastor or a teacher and you want to uh, to to teach through this well or preach through the Book of Job well. This will be a wonderful resource for you. But I can tell you, if you're a layperson who wants a terrific uh, devotional guide through a substantive book of the Bible that raises our deepest questions. This is an excellent resource for you to go to. Use it for your personal use. Use it for Sunday school discussion or a small group. Um, Each chapter has really, really probing and excellent questions already there for you to work through. It's an excellent resource. You'll be very glad uh, that you used it in any one of those kinds of of applications. And if uh, you will go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, you can enter to win a copy of this wonderful book. And so we'd encourage you to do that. And while you're there, you might even want to consider making a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals so that they can continue uh, to provide this kind of content for you. Uh, Anthony, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a fun and uh, needful. Thank you for having Mm -hmm. me. And uh, for all of you listeners, we look forward to being with you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Excuse me, just a little observation. The the wire in your microphone might be hitting the desk and making a little noise. We I run an you. incredibly tight ship. Here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, That's, thank you so much. We operate yeah. with Vincent Minelli levels of perfection. You know, you're you're going to move that. That was it, the big wheel in the fairground. Did he have it? He had it moved six inches or something just to get the <laughs> shot right. It was then, I think, that Frank Sinatra walked off the set and refused to go back. <laughs> Carl, you are a pop culture encyclopedia yeah for somebody who despises pop culture officially i seem to know an awful lot about it don't I? Yes. 
Hello, I'm Jonathan Master, president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. When I look back at what first drew me to the Alliance, it was Dr. Boyce speaking about the great need for reformation and a return to historic Reformed confessions, biblical preaching, and thoughtful worship. Given the changes in our culture since then, that need is even greater today. The church today needs bold proclamation of sound doctrine, clear teaching of the Bible, and worship that is God-honoring and full of reverence and joy. At Greenville Seminary, we aim to meet this need by equipping men for pastoral ministry, men who are courageously committed to the truth, who are Christ-like in their character, committed to prayer, and called to be ministers of God's Word in local churches. If you're interested in learning more about Greenville Seminary, either as a prospective student or as an interested friend, visit us at gpts.edu. Greenville Seminary, equipping preachers, pastors, and churchmen for Christ's kingdom among the nations.